Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Sturs? What the fuckettes? There's a lot more what the fuckettes these days. I don't, I don't know what that's about, but welcome. What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How are you? Selma Hayek is on the show tonight. <laughs> what am I doing? What, did, what, what do you mean tonight? Right? In the, she's on the show in a minute. You know her from the movies she made with Robert Rodriguez. She made Frida. She was the executive producer of Ugly Betty. Uh, she was in an independent movie that I love called Beatrice at Dinner. Talk about that a bit. She's currently in a movie called Bliss with Owen Wilson, which is a movie about living in a simulated reality and not knowing what is real and what isn't, which actually has a bit of relevance today. So... Fucking coyotes, am I right? I got to be honest with you, people. I, I I know sometimes I may come off as a dire, cynical, worked up, but I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be, I don't think I'm negative. I don't think I'm a depressive. I think sometimes I'm more sensitive than others and more in tune with the frequencies that are causing me fear and panic which i need to embrace i think we should all embrace a little bit you can do whatever you do to stuff those things down i'm a magician i will now bend my negativity into a positive please folks bear with me bear with me everything is so great it's everything is just so fucking good I'm feeling bad. I'm happy to be alive today. Bend it. Twist it. Listen. I am feeling a little better today. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not paying any lip service to the Super Bowl, which happened yesterday, but I recorded this before the Super Bowl. And I got to be honest with you, and it's not being condescending nor dismissive nor judgmental, but I have no fucking idea who's playing. I could look it up, but I don't care. It's not I'm not avoiding the information. I don't follow any of it, and I just don't know. But there's a lot of things I don't know. I'm starting to realize that as we sort of find ourselves in our own bubbles and we are very specifically picking and choosing uh, you know, what we put in our brains. It's very easy to realize what you're tapped into and what you're not tapped into when the collective momentum is fragmented. Yeah, there's a lot I don't know. And then my brain is sort of like, God, no one's watching that today. It's like, no, 
you're not. Doesn't mean there aren't millions doing it just because it's not part of the information you're taking in. No, in my world, nobody cares about it. I'm, I'm surprised if they even have the game. That's how, you know, if I'm not interested, they might as well cancel it. That's the narcissistic isolation bubble of judgment based on your own engagement with the world, which is all limited to a very specific set of choices for each of us right now. But the coyotes, man, the fucking coyotes, the middle of the night. Now, I'm, I, you know, I live in a neighborhood. It's an old neighborhood. And uh, but, you know, it's L.A. And it's not far from a hill, a mountain of sorts. And I hadn't, uh, right when I moved in here after it rained once, there was a, a large coyote in my front yard. Something is shitting in my front yard occasionally in the same place as if to prove a point. Sort of off, it's not like any place I walk around, but it's sort of in the same place off to the left of the front of the house. Just some wild thing is taking a dump to make a point. I don't know what the point is. I don't know what kind of animal it is. Maybe it's a coyote, but I saw a big one there once and it was... Kind of menacing. I don't know why we assume they're not wolves. They're not going to attack. They are. Coyotes are kind of pussies. I know they represent something. The trickster. The coyote is the trickster in the uh, indigenous people's uh, spiritual universe. The coyote is an omen of an unfortunate event or thing in your path or in the near future. Why? Why do we have to do that? That's from Navajo mythology. It is certainly an unfortunate omen for any cat, any outdoor cat or small dog. The, you know, 99% of the time, the coyote is not a good thing. Let's see, what is this coyote legend from the Oregon Encyclopedia? Nonetheless, coyote is a very popular figure playing his role of scheming, self-seeking trickster, stirring up trouble, testing and violating moral precepts. Oh, so he's basically a comic. Coyote is comic. He provides a vicarious escape from social restrictions. That is, until his usual comeuppance for such outrageous misbehavior reinforces them. Man, these coyotes... Yeah, and some of these some of these myths say he in, helped the gods invent the the people. Why is the coyote? What is? Oh, here we go. This is important. What does coyote poop look like? Hmm. Coyote scats are rope like and typically filled with hair and bones, unlike dog scat. <laughs> scat. Coyotes use scat to communicate. Oh, so that scat. So whoever's been scatting in my front yard is definitely not a coyote, because it looks like a. Looks like a vegetarian scat to me. But the coyote is a trickster. A tough audience. But man, I I heard a pack of them the other night. I was laying in bed, woke me up at 3.30 in the morning, just cackling, reveling coyotes. Someone told me that they're mating now. I always assume when they're laughing and yelping, it's because they've just ruined somebody's life by eating their pet. But no, they might just be... Uh, out on the, uh, they might just be out at the club. They might just be looking for love. I don't know. I don't know. But it woke me up, but Buster swept right through it. Buster didn't give a fuck. Then the next day we heard him and Buster was freaked out. Because I assume that Buster has some memory of that. He was out on the streets until he was about two months old, running around, a wormy, a wormy little kitten. I was going through some papers and stuff, and I saw the history of my cats, lives, and deaths. Buster was born in March, we assume, March 2016. 
The tricksters are out. They are an omen to your pet. So I watched uh, Nomadland, which I thought was great. I, I was wary about it, and then I watched it, and I did, had no idea. I mean, obviously, Francis McDormand is, is always amazing, and I guess some actual nomad people, American nomads, people who are out there going from uh, um, regional job to regional job, living in their cars or campers. But uh, it's a beautiful movie, but it's really about grief. It's a sad movie, but it, it is not, uh, it, it, it's an elevation of the human spirit at the end. It's a, it's a little heavy hearted, but it, it really is a movie about, about grief when you look at it. I thought, is this a movie about people who just have a, a community of wandering people? Is it about homeless people? No, it's about situational um, displacement, but it's really a movie about personal grief, and it's quite a beautiful film. I recommend it. I recommend it. Selma Hayek. We had a pretty tight hour here to talk, and I think we got into some stuff. Kind of, uh, I think we connected. It Sometimes it's tricky, because I know she's doing a lot of these. She's talking to a lot of people. She's going on and off 10-minute junkets. She's She's been sort of uh, flogging this movie, Bliss. Is that what you say? Is that the right word? Which I, I thought was a pretty good movie. Um, hadn't seen Owen Wilson in a while, hadn't seen Selma in a while. And then I got to talk to her face to face on the video, which was, uh, daunting because she's powerful. So this is me, uh, talking to, uh, Selma Hayek about her movie Bliss with Owen Wilson, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime Video and, and many other things. All right. So, so, uh, enjoy listening to this. This is me and Selma Hayek. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. Hello, Salma. How are you? I'm good. Yeah? Nice to see you. You look nice. Thank you. So do you. Thank you. You have a big mic. I know. Very intimidating. What are you drinking? I am drinking um, lemon, cayenne pepper, and maple syrup. Really? So, and, and it's that's in water. That's water. Yeah, and is that is it is that supposed to uh, keep you uh, from getting COVID? <laughs> no, no, I wish it's supposed to keep me awake for you. Oh, really? <laughs> what what time is it there? I just didn't sleep last night. It's only six thirty. But if you didn't have a good night's sleep, then why were you freaking out about something? Yeah. What? I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> no, 
I hate when I can't sleep. Oh, me too. It's the worst. Do you? I usually like. It doesn't happen to me too often, but if your brain starts going, it's a problem. And you know, I don't need a lot of sleep. I sleep like only like five hours a night. Yeah, me too. Yeah, hours a night. Yeah. So I don't need. I wake up at five in the morning. I go to sleep late at night. But if I sleep f- four hours and yeah. fifty minutes, I'm really a zombie. <laughs> I need my five. <laughs> But what do you do? Like I'm, I, I'm the same way. I get up at six thirty in the morning. But now with the, you know, with everything limited, every day seems like two weeks. Not to me. No. Not to me. Oh, it's magical. This is the mo- first of all. I, I have a production company in LA, but I live in London. Right. Okay. So at yeah. five o'clock, I still work because I get to talk to the people in LA. Oh yeah, right. I, and I can call oh, even family sometimes. I wake them up in Mexico, but um, I usually don't call them right away because five o'clock is the time where I get to be alone. Yeah. All right. Quiet. I'm married with children. I'm a working mother how, that is married. On top of it, how old's your kids? I have from uh, twenty-four to thirteen. <laughs> how many? Four. And they're all there. No, only the 13. Oh, that's But you lot. know what? Only what? The, I inherited three children before the 13. Oh, okay, okay, right. But there's mine. Right, right. And But they're spread out. But just a 13-year-old's home. But that's for a lot. For now, of- yes. For now, yes, because they're, they're kind of, the, there was another one living with us, but she is been drafted. First of all, now she's in university, and she's been drafted by the French team. Yeah. Um, of uh, jumping horses, equitación. Oh wow, that's a, that's impressive. I don't know. I, I I just the idea of being on a horse frightens me. Oh, they're gorgeous animals. Do you? But do you ride them? I used to ride them, and then I had a very traumatic accident. On a horse. On a horse. What happened? I was asked to ride horses for other people and sometimes to help out yeah a new horse arrived and he was crazy right and i got on the horse and started working the horse and the horse went insane yeah and they started screaming at me it was so bad he was bagging me against the rails oh my god he said jump off the horse okay yeah Yeah. so i finally jump off the horse and for the i've never even heard of this before he came back to try to kill me on the ground. Like a bull. Yeah. And he stepped on, I mean, I, I had, I had, I, I have some injuries and everybody came in to try to get the horse, but yeah, I just didn't know the horse had that. In, and, and it's very rare, very almost impossible. And so I didn't ride again. And, but I do rescue horses. I have a ranch Yeah, and I have the horses, but they're free in the field and, um, and I have ridden horses for movies. Sure. In Bandidas, I had to do a lot of tricks on the horse. So I've built myself up for it. And just lately, I, I shot um, a movie called Eternals, and they don't want me to say anything about it. So I might be in trouble, but... You didn't I, say anything yet. I didn't sleep last night. I can always tell them that. Yeah. Um I, I ride a horse in that movie, and I have now... <laughs> I don't think that's a spoiler, is it? <laughs> it is, because it's a sci-fi movie. How hard... It, it's kind of strange to, to have uh, an eternal, you know, creature yeah. 
on earth riding a horse. But I, I, I kind of healed it this last time. You healed the horse? You healed your, your, your fear? I mean, you my fear, yeah, my, my anxiety about so it. So when you were right, when you had the injury with the scary horse, were you a kid? I was 21. Oh, uh, was that in Mexico? Yes. That was the, some thing you were doing at that time, was training horses? That was the thing you did? For fun. Oh, okay. I was, I was an actress already. No, oh, yeah, oh, already, but you just like the horses. How much family do you still have over there? Hundreds. Hundreds. We're Mexican. I'm Mexican Lebanese. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. I'm also 54, so they start piling up with the kids and the more kids and the more kids. Mexican, Lebanese, and Catholic. A lot of kids. A lot of kids, yeah. How does Mexican Lebanese happen? Your father was Mexican Lebanese? Yes. How did that, How? what's the history of that connection? My mother, Mexican Spanish. My grandfather came to Mexico. My father was born in Mexico. Okay, so your grandfather was Lebanese? Yes, and my grandmother. Completely the opposite of the typical um, story of an immigrant. Uh -huh. My grandfather actually came from a well-to-do family with money to Mexico and um, lost it all. <laughs> On what? On textiles. Uh -huh. he, he had a partner. Okay. Oh, who kind of took the, it. The bad partner. Yeah. <laughs> the, the partner that runs off with the money. Yeah. Uh well, that's interesting. So your your mother is Mexican Spanish, and your your father is really sort of Lebanese, you know, from going way back. Yeah, my my grandparents on my mother's side were Spanish. Now, so that must mean that was there an interesting hybrid of food of between Lebanese and oh, Mexican? Oh my God! Yes, and you know what? I what? didn't know that that uh, you know the kipe was not Mexican. <laughs> kipe or wasn't Mexican. The paella was not Mexican. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And my mother is a fantastic cook and my father is a fantastic eater. Yeah. And so I I I grew up eating a lot of really good food. I, I bet. I mean I I I'm excited about it. I grew up in New Mexico. And then there is the New Mexican food, which is yeah. the Tex Mex, which is also great. Green chili, baby. Green chili. Oh yeah, green chili and chili con carne. Now, this movie, I watched a movie last night. The new movie. I I, th I think we should talk about it a little bit because that's why you're here. Now let Hell me just <laughs> let me make sure I understand. Like maybe I'm wrong, and I'm not trying to 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 be uh, uh, dim diminishing in any way. But is it a movie about a guy who uh, who might have seen the Matrix, who has a nervous breakdown after his divorce, and then eventually wakes up? Mark, <laughs> you got it perfectly right. <laughs> Perfectly right, because the movie is designed to be a different movie according to the spectator. You're right. No, we, he talked about this to us. The director? great length. That's what he wanted to do. A movie, it's kind of like interactive movie because, and, and you know, for the performance, you had to do a performance that would work in, in, in the different versions. Right. Well, I mean, I thought that was kind of amazing that the two of you, how much you committed and it was, and you made it work. Like in the, like, cause it's arguable, like, I don't want to, you know, it's hard not to, I don't want to give away the movie, but whether or not you're real or not, you know, whatever was going on around the crystals, you know, it was like drug addicts, right? So you guys but have to- his main, his main theme, it's drug addiction. Uh, yeah. There's two things that for him are, were very important that we hit all those marks. And it was either 
a movie where there is a bliss world where everything is perfect and beautiful and people have lost the appreciation and everything is just common for them. Yeah. So a scientist, which is me, me creates um, different worlds in a simulation where people can go and experience um, a little, uh, how do you say, an ugly world. Yeah. Reality. <laughs> Horrible at, reality. An ugly reality so that you can come back and appreciate the reality that you have. Sort of what happened right now in Corona. You know, we thought we were living in a terrible world until yeah. they locked us down. And all of a sudden you say, wait a minute, it was nice to see a friend and hug him. Yeah. It was nice, you know, to know if the person talking to you hates you or likes you or is smiling or has bad teeth. Right. Uh, and so <laughs> that's one version. And the other version is it's a movie about addiction that was very important for him that it was not judgmental. And we could take kind of like a trip into when you're inside of it, yeah. that's your reality. Right, right. And it takes you over. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting way to do it because there are definitely moments with the two of you, like especially that moment where, you know, he disappears and you're like, where were you? You know, like, you know, that it became clear to me that what we're seeing is that whether or not your character is reality or not, whatever they're going through is just flat out horrible drug addiction. It's addiction. It's, yeah. Thank you. And so I'm so excited you brought this up, this scene. I'm going to tell you why, because you're also an actor and you're going to appreciate this. Okay. So for this scene, he wanted from me. Yeah. Not to have just some anxiety attack. Right. Yes, and, and some emotional breakdown. Right. I have to have the need for the drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The need for him, because mm -hmm. that's another kind of addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fear of being alone. Oh. Whether it's losing your soulmate. Right. That it's you're losing it to another reality. Yeah. Or whether it's losing your partner that you do the drugs with. Right. And here comes the most interesting challenge. My character believes that all these emotions are not real. Yeah. So as an actor, I have to play all that, but come in and out because I'm trying to convince myself that what's wrong? I shouldn't be feeling this because I know it's not real. He's dragging me to him, but wait a minute, why did they take? So I had to play the drug addict, the sand, in this same scene yeah and it was but if good you do it to to not real then you the audience don't go with it right and if you do it just about one thing then the audience don't feel the need for the drug and for the, him as a drug or the desperation that you're losing your soulmate to a, on another reality that you created and it's your fault right i thought i thought you did a great job because like i had that moment you know i've got a, everybody's got a past and we've all dealt with different types of people in our lives but that moment where you're you know you're just like where were you like that screaming where were you and it, like i thought it was chilling because you know i've been in some bad relationships in my life <laughs> and somebody else is gonna say she's over the top no i've seen this happen yes no i i that's true i've seen it happen and i was sort of amazed that you know that owen i guess because of 
you know, his history too. You guys played this very realistically. And, and I realized as an actor, it must have been challenging because of the nature of how the reality in the movie was shifting. But but when you guys are in it and connecting around the crystals, like it felt very genuine to me. Yes. And then, oh, I mean, if you play, if you're going to examine it from an addiction point of view, you know, there's so many justifications around it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And all the justifications you're making are the justifications of just regular desperate drug addiction. But in the context of this other reality, her, you know, her mental illness. It's the scientist talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. But the obsessive compulsive nature of it, like so many for you, so many for me. Oh, my God, we don't have enough. You never have enough when you're an addict. No, yeah, tell me about it or food or anything. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but scientifically, maybe you really don't have enough. Right. Right. Oh, right. Right. Oh, I see. It's really what you're sophisticated if you really examine the film. It's very unique. It's different. It's definitely different. I didn't know what to do with it for about uh, half of the movie. Like, I was like, what is it? Is this going to be stupid? What are we doing here? And then I started to piece together you know, intellectually, you know, what, what, you know, what the tells were in terms of like, is this real? Is it not real? You know, in that, like, cause when the scene where, you know, you, you guys are in the, in the utopia, you know, and then you, you say like, don't you remember what you invented? And you pull out this thing and I'm like, oh my God, that, 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 that's something a child would invent. You know, like it's not, you know, it's not a real invention. Right. So, so like I started to think in terms of like, is this just going on in his head? So it does play games with you, you know? Well, and, and also the, the justification for that was that I was the real scientist and he was just kind of like a dude that was not. Yeah, just sitting there smoking really the some. Same level, who was just a nice guy, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This woman, which is a lot to take. It's complicated, huh? And she tries to make the most of it in a relationship. But you're brilliant, Luke. You, don't you remember? Yeah. He did this, and it's the silliest thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of cool at the same time. Oh, yeah, it was cool. But it was sort of like, is this possibly, you know, part of his imagination or his hallucination? Always. Even me, I can't Right, believe. right, I right. I probably never existed. Yeah, I have a hard time with with uh, with fantasy and science fiction, but I, I stayed with it, and I and I and I uh, I locked in, and I I took it for what it was, and it was good. It was good because I can identify with addiction. However, I will tell you this: that is also very interesting. This science fiction film has so many parallels to a reality we're living today. I think that's true. The most important one is that without going to a different dimension a parallel reality in a different dimension. We're living in a world where different bubbles of people yes. are living in different realities. Yeah, scary. And for each one of them, it's completely real. Right. And when you hear them talk, even friends that you thought you understood how they thought for years, they start talking about things that sound like sci-fi and it makes complete sense to them. Yeah, and then the scariest part about that reality that we're living in is that if you hear it too much, you'll start going like, well, maybe I don't know. Well, exact, but that's the film. The film is reflecting the living we're living in today. Yeah. Many metaphors. and But the beauty is that at least my character mm. learns to be self selfless enough that even though she has to sacrifice 
something very important, which I won't say why, she learns to accept and to respect that different people get to choose their their realities. Right. Yeah, but some, like, but like, like in in the world we're living in right now, that's difficult because you know a line has to be drawn because some of those realities are threatening, you know, the world we live in, right? But for them, your reality is threatening the world they're living in. I know, but at some point, Selma, we've got to call a crazy person a crazy person, right? But there are different <laughs> pockets of crazy. You know, collectiveness, uh-huh. collective craziness in different yeah. pockets. Yeah. And they're thinking the same so thing you ha- about yours and mine. I know, but but they're wrong, is what I'm saying. But that's they're saying you're wrong. Yeah, but there has to be some there has to be some basic reality, don't you think? That's what I thought. But you talk to them and it's really basic reality. <laughs> there is a lot of people. And I'll tell you what, technology uh-huh. plays a big part because... Of course. Like, I have a friend who thinks the world is its not round, Stop it's it. flat. Stop it. still your friend? Yes, because he's been my friend forever, and I'm not going to stop. We have to stop judging. No, you don't. Not if a person thinks that the world is flat. You can well, judge I've that. Had, I, I have now, like, a year of discussions about it. and A year of discussions you've had. One of the things, yes, I stop now, but um, (laughs) one of the things that, uh, by the way, they laugh at us, they think we're so naive. And it is impossible. And and they say, I can show you in the internet how many scientists have proved it and how many pilots have seen it. it And it's a conspiracy against the whole world. And, And I go, I'm sorry. There is one place where the world stops separating in conspiracy, and that's economics. Uh-huh. And and I said it would cost too much money to make to pay all the pilots of all the different countries to say the same lie. Yeah, this is impossible. Yeah, and we can go on and on and on and on and on. And and I'm telling you this, but there's many other conspiracies. But they think that we're naive, or I mean, think about religions. I know. And this is like so important for us. Those, those are the original conspiracy theories. And they contradict <laughs> with each other. So we learn yeah. to live with our religions. Yeah. Respecting the well-being of everybody. And this is where we need to find and just respect the beliefs. And if, if you're from one religion, okay. from okay. when you were little. I, I agree with you. But but see, like, you know, you have beliefs here. But then, you know, if we're going to let people and indulge them and, hey, man, you know, you have the right to believe whatever you want to believe. But we have to accept science. OK, so you Thank can believe. You. Right. I believe in science. Good. But <laughs> it's not so simple, my friend, because uh-huh. all the religions if you go through science, none of them are right. If you start exactly, that's fine now, with me. It gets worse because now there's some scientists that are contradicting scientists. Right, scientists. But, right. So they're the dangerous ones. They, uh, that, like, I, I know. Okay, but they think that the other scientists no, I know are that. the dangerous but, but, ones. But they're wrong. They're wrong. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. You had Mr. Science in your, and you had Bill Nye in the movie. Yeah, yeah. 
Did you enjoy hanging out with him? <laughs> oh, yes. I enjoy hanging out with him, but you know what I enjoy? I enjoy how much he enjoyed, you know, being there and that yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. now, did you find, like, what was that great movie that you were in, uh, Beatrice at Dinner? Oh, thank you for watching that. What did, that was great. You were great in that. that. And that was really kind of an exploration of, you know, class and, you know, like uh, all of the all the good stuff. And it, you know, and it was really kind of it, it, a very surprising ending. Did you feel like, um, why now who made that movie? What, what makes you take a movie like that? Just because the character is so great? Oh, it's funny. You, you're talking about two movies that Mike, uh, Miguel Arteta directed that, Mike White wrote it. Right. Okay? Yeah. And I think they're genius. Yeah. Um, they did The Good Girl together, yes. Chuck and Bok together. And uh, they're friends. They're, mm -hmm. they're my friends. We tried to do a movie with Miguel a long time ago um, about two lesbian women raising a child. Yeah. And they said, no, no, to risque. Julian Moore was going to be my wife, but not wife because it was. And anyway, Didn't they make that movie? movie never got done because it was so ahead of its time. It never happened. Um, uh, what, wasn't Annette Benning and I thought Julianne Moore and Annette Benning didn't they do a movie like that with Mark Ruffalo? Anyways, go ahead. Yes, years later, a yeah. different one. Right. When then it was okay to make it. Right. Um, and and then I I, I actually hired him in a in a show I produced called Ugly Betty and uh, I've always been a fan of Mike. And then one day they came to my house and Mike said, "I have an idea for a movie. I want to spend a little time with you because I want to write something for you." And I was 49 at the time. I was about to be 49, like a week before yeah. they came to my house. We spent many hours. He talked to me. I said, what is it about? And he said, I'm not going to tell you, but what do I play? But do I have a good role? I don't care, but I, I don't care. I'll do anything you want because I really respect right. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're friends. And he said, it's, it's, it's a lead. And then he hadn't started writing anything. And a week later, I got an email from him saying happy birthday with the entire script. In one week, he wrote it, 10 days maximum. And uh, I would have done anything with them just because sometimes you just look, these are two movies and it's so interesting that we're you brought that one up, that I was so free because I didn't care if they were good or bad at the end. I didn't care if people saw it or liked them. Right. I wanted to explore the character in a specific way and have the freedom to make mistakes and go there and do my best and try something different. Yes. And not your usual go-to things. Yes. That we, as actors, sometimes they start working and they become your worst enemy. Right, you oh, the, what you're expected, what people think you do, like you, they. And what they, you do, you keep doing it. I mean, how yes, many so, actors that you've been watching for a long time, you say, "Oh my God, it's kind of the same thing." But even if it's not, it's like what works, you know. Right, right, sure, yeah. For them, so you would, so that you, I, I like to always continue to learn and grow and change, and so I, I, I loved it. I thought it was challenging, challenging for the brain, challenging in many ways. Mm. And uh, also when we were shooting it, I was not allowed to move my hands or my face. Hmm. And the camera is on my face right here the entire time. And on the second day I said, 
No one's gonna like this film. <laughs> Everybody's gonna be so boring looking at my face that doesn't move. And then when I saw the movie, the more it was kind of moving, but even without me trying to, and I had to train myself not to think about not moving it also, not doing anything, doing yeah, very little. That must have been hard. So that I didn't distract me. Yeah. And as you can see, I'm. Yeah, yeah. I, you know what? Once you get into the character, then that's the character, then that it takes over the character. Yeah. So, so, so these two movies, like that one and this one, you know, were challenging because, like, you get, like, I, I can see that, like, in this new one in Bliss, like, you get pretty raw. You get pretty raw. It's not caring. Like, I'm just going to give it my, give it it all, not think about it, not think about it if they're going to like it, what they're going to think, you know, if they're going to destroy my career, if they're going to criticize my performance. I'm just going to do what the director wants. I just want to please this director because he deserves it because he has a vision. A lot of times I work with directors, they don't have a vision. They're just right. And they just want you to do it, you know, do the Salma Hayek thing. Just do the thing you do. Well, I mean, but you've done a lot of, even like that movie, like all, you know, looking back on like Freda, I mean, that must have taught you everything about, you know, willingness to take chances and and also willingness to put yourself out there and willingness to to be uh, outspoken in what you do. So you've sort of had that in your mind all along. But, But it was the first one. Yeah. I didn't get a chance to do that. And that's because I produced it. Right. And I controlled it. Yeah. And it was my dream. And my dream was very specific. Yeah. I would have done it with a different director. It would have been a different film. I had a very clear vision of what film I wanted to make and why. And also I understood the character very, very well. I had been researching her for so many years. Yeah, I don't think people like I like I remember I don't know that that I fully understood the importance of of her in in Mexico. Like I can't even like fathom, you know, how important she was to you growing up. It, it wasn't that important to Mexico at that time. Oh, really? And by the way, when she was alive, uh, people diminish her work. Right. Right. Because she, she was, was in the shadow of Diego. Yes. Mm. And there was a movement, the muralist movement uh where all the great minds around the world and artists because there were a lot of artists from another parts of the world and they were painting in the walls of mexico a political interpretation of reality <laughs> yes and uh and she was making little strange uh portraits it was not the cool thing to do are you glad that you stuck you know it's like in your story did you are you still friends with uh, robert rodriguez yes yeah um, I talked to him years ago. Yeah, and that guy—he's he's a character, and he's got a, a pretty—he's got a great vision. That guy, huh? Yes, yes. And um, my God, I learned so much. I was very good, close to him and his wife at the time. They were kind of my family. Yeah, and they had a lot of children. <laughs> yeah. And it was very funny because she was great, but every time she gave birth, and at the at the beginning ones, they didn't have a nanny. Yeah. She was exhausted from the birth, so I was the nurse of the babies. I would come in and let her rest and take the babies. Yeah. And I would sit with the baby in front of the editing machine with uh, Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. And uh, my God, I learned a lot. I love editing. I love editing. That's where it all happens, right? I love editing. It's fascinating. When are you going to direct again? I am, I am going to direct soon. Yeah? Hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully. You got a you got a plan. You got a project. 
I got a project. Yeah. I got a project that I've been thinking about for 17 years. 17 years. Just sitting there in your head and you can't talk about it or else it'll ruin it, right? No, I can talk about it a little bit. Okay. I don't know if it's going to get me. Um, not sitting just there, it, uh, you know, it's very ambitious. Yeah. It's very complicated. It's very expensive. It's technical. It's commercial, but it's technical. Yeah. Like there were some things that I'm glad I didn't do it before because the technology is so much better to do it now. Yeah. I'm going to see if anybody trusts me with the money soon. I have the script. I wrote it. You wrote the whole thing? Yeah. And and it's your idea? It's not yeah. based on a novel or anything? No. What's it about? Too soon. Too soon. But please invite me back. No, I will. Well, here's a question that just came up. And, it, you know, obviously it's something you've talked about before. And obviously, you know, it, it's, it's, it's heavy stuff. But I'm curious because I, I found myself asking the question yesterday because, uh, Evan Rachel Wood, you know, came out with, uh, you know, with her experience with Marilyn Manson. And, you know, I'm happy that she she spoke out. But there was that question in my head, which was like, why? Why does it take so long? You know, and then when I was like getting ready to talk to you and I saw you address that, that, you know, there's something that that women living in this business and living in this world that they've been taught to accept and try to live with, but like, how do you answer that question? Why, why do you think it takes so long to talk, to speak out? First of all, it depends on, on, on the type of abuse. Yeah. Uh, but normally it takes you sometimes time to accept it to yourself mm. that there was abuse and the level of abuse. Right, because you have it framed in a different way. There's part of the brain that thinks like, I just have to get through it, or I just have to, you know, you know, it's deal with it. Yeah, right. Right, right. Mm. But there, there's so much to this. Deal with it, or is it once? It's once. It happens once or twice, and you didn't get out. With there's a whole psychological study about why you don't get out because there's a process of first they break your self-esteem, they create also a a co, um, how do you say when you're addicted? No, uh, you uh, they are co a codependency. Yes, codependency. Right. You okay. need. Right. They, and then yeah. they keep breaking you psychologically and emotionally. Mm. So it's done in a way that the abuser also kind of instinctively knows what they're doing. Normally they come from abuse. Mm. So the, it's a whole thing. So it's hard to get out. Now you're ashamed that you don't get out. So you have to say it's not really abuse right. or I can deal with it. Rationalize. And finally you get out and you say, I got out. I'm not a victim. Right. And you don't want people to identify you as a victim. You right. got out. Right. You survived it and you got out, you know, and why talk about it? It's my business, you know? Right, right, right. And then, like, I, I wrote something for the New York Times of a, a situation I lived uh, with Harvey Weinstein. Yes, yeah. And um, I did, I, you know... I didn't have a relationship with Harvey Weinstein. Let me clarify that. I had a working yeah. relationship with right. uh, Harvey Weinstein that was abusive in, any, in many ways. He didn't get away with what he wanted to get away. I have to clarify this. But um, the thing is that 
it was traumatizing and and i i actually was very smart for the five years in trying to get frida done on how i handled it because i wouldn't even let him see any weakness i i was very very strong but afterwards when mm. i would go home sometimes i'd be depressed for weeks yeah from that encounter that he probably however i survived it i didn't do anything with him that i that I, you know i didn't do anything with him i got the movie made against his will mm. i was clever enough to corner him um uh, legally to make a film he didn't want to make because he was not getting what he wanted out of me for doing the movie right. and he still had to do it. He made my life miserable while we were shooting it. Yeah. And I came out of it and I said, I won. <laughs> yeah. I beat him at his game. Yeah. I'm not a victim. I healed. I'm a, I'm a fighter. I'm strong. When everybody started coming out with the stories, I realized I healed only one part because I had no idea all these women were going through. And it's almost like just hearing them going through it that I was going through it again. And I started spiraling down again. So I really actually didn't completely heal it. Right. And uh, until I wrote that piece that it took me a while to get it down into paper. And I said, what's the point already? Everybody else talked, but... I also had something to say that people were not mentioning that it's not only for women. It, it was not just the sexual, it's the mental abuse within work yes. of the bully. Right. And he abused a lot of men too. So anyway, that really healed it. And it healed it because in my case, it came out as a part of many women, like an army of women. Yes. standing together. So that's what healed me. So why you wait so long? Because you push it on your subconscious. You don't want to think about it. And then something happens in your life that you say, oh my God, it was worse than I thought. Yes. Right. It was so much worse than I thought. And you, you think it's fair to yourself mm. to acknowledge it and talk about it. But for everybody, it's different. It takes time. It's trauma. Right. And also, I, I, I think what it speaks to, and, 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 and you spoke to it a bit in the New York Times article, and I know this is going back a bit, but, but you, you know, these, these, this method of working around you know, men in the industry and around men in general has been in place forever. That, you know, you were, I, I guess people are brought up, women are brought up to believe this is the way this works. And men are brought up to believe that yes. this is the way it works and that it's okay. Yes. They did were brought up to believe that. Yes. And they got away systematically. Yes. So it, it's not, I, I feel for them too. Uh-huh. You know? Right. It's like, it's wrong, but you should do it anyway because you can and, and it's terrible. Do you have empathy for them? I have empathy for everyone. That's, that's good. Did you always? And I believe in second chances. Yes. But I also believe in consequences. That makes sense. I believe in consequences so that you can really deserve an, a second chance. Yes. And you can really understand the balance 
of what's wrong and right and good and bad and real and not real. <laughs> right, right. So you like, because there is a sort of like, you know, the momentum of the way things sort of pick up. I think a lot of times another reason that people don't speak out is because, you know, there's going to be consequences, both good and bad, just for for sharing your story. I mean, I know from just talking to women on this show that almost always, if I have a woman guest, there's going to be a, a whole army of frustrated, angry, weird little men who are going to make shitty comments. And, you know, I... I Right. So I imagine after a certain point, it's like the decision also hinges on like, do I want to deal with that shit? Do you know what I mean? Right. You know, they're going to say, why do you have empathy? It's not that I say, oh, poor thing. That's not what I mean. But I do have empathy, for example, for their families, for their children. And how about I, I, I can understand that they're going through a hard time, but they deserve it. Right. Because they're leaving the consequences. Right. But I feel sad for the whole thing altogether. There is my empathy. I wish he hadn't done it. Mm. I wish his family didn't have to go through it. Yeah. I wish the victim didn't have to go through it. Yes. I don't just think, oh, he's a horrible person. Nobody's only one thing. There's other aspects of every human being. I know. Isn't that interesting that we live in an age where because of clickbait and other things, everybody there's this there's this force in in culture that makes wants to make people one thing. And and if you don't like get on board with the one thing and you still have empathy or you still respect the other parts of that person, you're some kind of uh, of uh, of a monster just as bad as them. You know what I mean? But people are complicated. And let me let me use an example. Of course, I'm going to get into trouble again here. Hilaria Baldwin. Mm. Do yeah. you know any controversy yes. about? Do you know? Yeah, what I know. I know that story. What do you make of it? Why are they going after this woman? <laughs> what is the this poor? Why are they going after this wonderful girl, lovely mother, great wife? I mean, Alec has never been better. Yeah. Alec, you know, he, she makes him happy. Why are they going after this woman? She's been going to Spain since she's six months old. Yeah. Yes, she, she was born in, in, in Boston. I knew she was born in Boston. She told me she was born in Boston. So it is her story. So what happens within the story are in different interpretations. Let's say that what happens if she identifies with that, if she identifies right. with both? Right. Who is she hurting? Well, that's I thought that, too, when I like because people wanted to make it seem like it was some sort of scam. And I'm like, what kind of scam? She obviously identifies more strongly and feels better, you know, you know, identifying with the part of her that that respects her, her Spanish background uh, in terms of living there. Oh, and her parents are still living there. Yeah. You know, the kids are speaking Spanish. They go to Bolivians. What if who is she hurting? She's not selling tapas. In, in the corner, you know, she's not an actress pretending to getting the roles of the actors that are Spanish. She's hurting no one. Why are they so mean to this person? And so and, and some friends say to me, she's appropriating our culture. How is she appropriate? Why are you not flattered? Exactly. She identifies <laughs> with our culture. Now we have to think in terms of I don't I mean, why not? Why do we go after these people of all the lying on, on the, you know, 
last years in our life that have caused a lot of damage, like yeah. big lies. And not just in the last years, starting from the chemical weapons yeah. that we never found and we went to war for. Right, right. <laughs> but let's go after Hillary. And I'm not, just so that not go to the typical examples. Uh, let's go after this girl. Why? Yeah. She's a nice girl. Yeah, and you've known Alec for a long time and you work with Alec and, you know, I'm sure you he probably, you'd probably talk to him through this and uh, and you empathize. I didn't, I, I didn't, Mark, because I didn't want to call. I don't even know exactly what it is. I didn't want to call and feed into the thing or, oh, right. I'm so sorry. This, I thought it was going to go away really fast because it's so ridiculous, you know? Right. But yes, uh, women, normally we are targeted very strongly, sometimes for really silly things. Yeah. And, that, and you think that is just basic misogyny just basic um you know male anger i mean i can't i i i really don't see i don't have it in me to think that way but it seems reactively true that anytime a woman says anything publicly that it's made into a mountain and and a lot of like primary like a lot of people get weird and angry and i don't i don't know how to i will explain to you because Somewhere along the line, our voice must have been very threatening mm. that it is uncomfortable. It's been uncomfortable through history to let us have a voice. That's why we didn't have the vote forever. Yes. The expectations for women are so high. I grew up, I grew up Catholic. Mm -hmm. And you have to imagine that when you read that Bible, the two most significant women are the virgin and the whore. Right. Okay. Yeah. In order to be the most beautiful thing in the world, which is a mother, you can't live up to that virgin who didn't have intercourse to have the children. Mm. We're never going to live up to that. Right. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. The one woman that did have the intercourse was the whore. Yeah. And so for men, it's like, what do we are supposed to expect for women? Mm. It, we, we, there are such high expectations of us today, which we're living in the modern world. And we say, no, we want equal pay. Now, you have to think that you have to work twice as hard and be twice as good to get half the the pay at the same time you're expected to spend all that time trying to prove yourself in the workplace but you're still expected to spend the time with your kids and your husband and be a good mother and be on top of the school which now sends you three thousand emails and have one thousand <laughs> activities but that's kind of your job too right not to mention the house has to be in perfect conditions yeah. You have to be in a good mood and nice, and you have you cannot age. You have to be hot on top of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. That's a lot, Selma. And God forbid you make a mistake when you talk. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. Well, yeah, and that was the thing, like, you know, the weird thing about reading, I read a piece about you and uh, when you made the, uh, when you directed that, the, the children's film. The Maldonado Miracle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
But there's this moment where, like what you're saying, uh, all the things you're saying about women right now is that Harvey Weinstein shamelessly called you and uh, the director of Frida. I forget her name. What's her name? Oh, yes. Yeah, Julie Tamer. Ballbusters. Right. But he he had no no shame about that. But, it, you know, that that in and of itself is minimizing considering the amazing amount of work and talent and effort and, and proficiency that was going into what you were doing. And the amount of money I made him. <laughs> right. And he just like he said that like it's it's okay to say that to minimize like that's that thing to put you in that box. Mark, I didn't feel minimized. No, I know. I feel redeemed. Yes, I bust your balls. Yeah, you needed to have your balls busted. (laughs) Yeah, Julie and I were like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. We did not feel insulted. Yeah, we did not feel insulted. Well, you do you feel like you know now? Do you feel in, in your life? You know, and in your work, do you feel like there is a shift happening? You Absolutely, know? lately. But I'll tell you, when I did Frida, it came out, I did not get one role that was different than the other sexy, silly roles that I was getting that had no me to act mm-hmm. in. Not, nothing changed. Right. Nothing changed. Nominated for an Oscar, nothing changed. Hmm. And then that's why I directed that film. My agent told me we have to be careful because directors don't like act, women to direct, actresses to direct. They're very, you know, protective. I won an Emmy for Best Director and I didn't work for three years. Huh. And I didn't even go to pick it up. I huh. didn't even, there, there was no press about it. There was very little press. Why do you about think it. that is? Why do you, do you, why, how much do you, I didn't is work it, for three years? She told do, me. Does it, is it racial? Or is it? They don't want somebody in the set that might know. Look, it was really when I was in my thirties. Mm. I, I I was pretty much the only woman that had successfully produced because I also did a, a very good hit show called Ugly Betty, television and film, many Academy Awards, and I had directed. And I had successful career as an actress. Yes. And I was an activist. Yeah. Nobody ever wrote about it. Huh. There was no American. And by the way, I was Mexican Arab. There was no other American that had done that either. Yeah. Jodie Foster had directed, but she never had a, 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 a TV show on network television that she produced. And, and, and there was like two, three of us. Yeah. This is before Angelina, who is amazing. And I think she said, Tremendous director. This is before she directed. This is before, before all of these, and nobody even would write about it. Huh. I was. They were still looking at me like, oh, the sexy Mexican chiquitina. Yeah. So that's like that's the old system still in place, really. They didn't want to see me as anything else. And now you feel it's a little different. Now it's different, and it's it's a lot different, and it changed really fast. Mm. And of course, there's a lot more to change. We gotta take the all the wins. We gotta take, acknowledge them, and feel them. And and I'll tell you, it's really funny how life works because I wrote that piece, and I had my film, and I was insecure about directing it and writing it. It's very difficult film to write, and I I kind of wrote something, and I was nervous, and then I wrote this piece. 
and it was in the New York Times, and it became the number one article in the New York Times for the year. And then they chose it as a small piece, as a small group of articles to go for the Pulitzer Prize, and we won. Yeah. And they used to call my my manager and say, who wrote that for her? Who wrote that for her? And oh I wrote it all by myself. Oh, and so I said, you know what? <laughs> I can write. <laughs> and then I went and, and worked on the script and I sent it around and turns out I can really write. And if I didn't have all of that, I would have never known because they put so much insecurity on you. Right. That it's hard to find it. You try to right, you try to fit into their expectations. Or or you start believing maybe that you're the, right. That that's what you are. That you have those limitations. Did you go pick up your Pulitzer? No, no, it's it's for the New York Times. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> my piece was a part of it. I That's have good. the percentage. Well, I mean, I think you do amazing work, and it sounds like you know personally, the growth that you experience has sort of spread out because of your voice into a more cultural momentum, which is kind of an amazing thing to be part of. Yeah, but I survived long enough to be a part of it. Yes. Well, you know what? You're not you're you you're not a broken person. No. And you speak for those people that can't speak, you know. And you know what? I'm not that angry either. Well, that's good. That'll but kill I think you. that's that's what made me survive. Yeah. Yeah. And also I think good parents. You must have had good parents. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. They built you properly. Yes, yes. And well, I also built myself properly. Yes, both. It's a nice combination. It's a nice combination. <laughs> I, I'm sure you had good parents or not good parents, but who built you? A, a lot of trial and error is what built me. You built yourself. Right, right. You, just, you keep getting up and you don't fall into a hole. You know, th you know what's the difference between a winner and a loser? What? How long it takes you to get up? <laughs> I like that. Fall. I like that. It was great talking to you. Great talking to you, Mark. All right, you take care, okay? Bye. There you go. She's a, isn't it nice to listen to Salma Hayek? The movie is Bliss with Owen Wilson, which is now streaming on Amazon Prime. Okay.
Where it lives. And Monkey. And the Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. <laughs> 